0: Hi everyone! Welcome to the Cult I Left Behind podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Briggs, and I'm here to tell you my stories of growing up in the IBLP cult, which you might know from the Duggar family.
1: And I'm your other host, Kyle Briggs. I'm Amanda's husband, and I have not heard most of these stories before, so stay tuned, and we'll all get traumatized together. welcome back to the next episode we are going to continue amanda's journey through college um last episode we went through the first year of college right
0: first year away first year we away. got through the end of my first year away from college okay for college
1: so what happens next
0: Oh, the second year away is when things started getting really interesting. But first, every time we record an episode, I realize like, oh gosh, I left out an important detail. There's a lot of moving parts and pieces to my story.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I feel like you're probably always gonna remember some stuff uh-huh. afterwards.
0: Yeah, and I'm not I'm not going back and filling in all the details. If you guys want those, I'll write a book someday. But I'm going back and filling in the key ones. Mm -hmm. So this is a key, a key point that I forgot to mention. And again, quick topic, disclaimer, um, sexual assault and mental health issues, including suicidality will feature again in this episode. As we keep getting through my story, I know there's a lot of dark and bad and that's been interesting for me. I've never gone into this much detail before, so just kind of slogging through it in chronological order has been <laughs> kind of eye-opening for me, honestly, mm-hmm. in terms of how bad it was.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're kind of running through it pretty quick as uh-huh. fast as we're recording these episodes, so it's kind of rehashing it all from beginning to end kind of How's quickly.
0: everyone doing? <laughs> how are we doing? <laughs> But the thing I wanted to circle back to is when my oldest sister, Andrea, found out, and that happened I think this summer mm, she was already at college. she'd met a guy, and they were courting. Mm, so we cult went guy no, no, like normal Christian Ooh. guy so but he went to the Moody Bible Institute, so <laughs> wasn't much better than a cult guy. And he uh he lived in Pennsylvania and in order to go out to visit him over the summer, she needed Andrea needed a chaperone, so I went with her and we stayed with her boyfriend's family for part of it, and then some friends in DC. We went and toured around DC. That was my first time out there, it was really cool.
1: So you went for a whole summer just No, because- just
0: for like a week or something. Oh, okay. It was like okay. a week, maybe two. I don't remember how long it was. And I was often Andrea and Todd's chaperone. I'm 10 years <laughs> younger than Andrea, but I was frequently their
1: chaperone. Was there a reason for why they picked, you know, the 10-year-old me? younger kid?
0: Well, I mean, I was, how old would I have been at that time? 16, maybe? Mm-hmm. So,
1: just old, I don't just know.
0: Old yeah, I don't know why me. Probably because Andrea and I used to get along really well. Okay. And we had fun together. And I mean, I just loved her so much and looked up to her and she was as the oldest of that many children with an unavailable mother. Like she was, she felt more like my mom than my biological mother did. Mm -hmm. So I really gravitated toward her, but she was gone a lot. Like she moved off to the cult when I was still a little kid, like an eight year old, because she graduated high school and Mm
2: -hmm. went off
0: to the cult headquarters to work and so I knew her like she was she was around but she was also kind of like a mystery too. So she was interesting, she was different. Yeah. So I go off to Pennsylvania with her and on the way out there she tells me about an individual who's been sexually assaulted and she's it was so funny cuz it was just the two of us in the car but she kept like whispering almost like sexually abused and I always got a feeling in my stomach when someone talked about any form of sexual violence. Cause I knew they didn't know that that, like I am one of the statistics mm-hmm. as well. And I wasn't allowed to tell anyone. And Amy had known for probably like two years at this point. I think, I think I was 16. I think it was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. Cause I graduated a year early. That's that's what I think, and as I as I throw out stuff, like there are certain things I am very certain on, like the legal stuff. I had to get really certain on that. There was evidence. Other stuff, like if I needed to go back and make it perfectly accurate, I could. I have journals and stuff, but for the purpose of this podcast and storytelling, and not bogging it down with too many details, I'm just kind of rolling through. And um, if you have questions, I can always make things more precise. But that's my memory. I was like sixteen ish years old, and. So we're driving out there and Andrew is telling me all this stuff. And I'm like, she's trying to figure out how to help this person and all this stuff. And it was someone Todd knew as well. And so they were like collectively trying to figure out like what they could do because the person was really struggling and depressed. And so I just listened and tried to be supportive. And we had, you know, the whole visit. And then on the way back home, I I cannot for the life of me remember how it came up. But I ended up telling Andrea about Andy. And she, in that moment, she actually had a really good response. Oh. Yeah. She like broke down sobbing and reached over and held my hand and kept telling me she loved me. And she was so sorry to hear that. And like for hours, she drove with one hand and held my hand with the other. And we both cried and I filled her in and I told her, I didn't tell her all the details, Mm But I told her Amy knew and we made a plan that like the three of us, because we were considered like the older siblings. So with with the eight of us kids, the first four were the older kids, the second four were the younger kids. And that's how we divided it up in the family. So Andrea, Amy, and I were all part of the older kids. Mm-hmm. So we decided to have like the older daughter circle around this. And after that, you know, Andrea's she, <laughs> she was legally culpable Technically, she was an adult. I was a minor and she should have reported it. And when I did eventually report like that came up, no charges were pressed because I didn't press charges against her. Um, and the state decided not to either. But she technically was supposed to report that just mm-hmm. to be very clear on on how that's supposed to work. But she didn't. But I did notice that after that, like she and Amy talked, she and Amy and I talked and they were nicer to me for a while. <laughs> For a couple years, like they they made sure we had like sister time, and we would do tea parties and make scones with clotted cream, and very elegant. And we went on little sister trips, and um, and that was nice for you know as long as it lasted, which sadly wasn't terribly long in the grand scheme of things, but that's a future episode. So that's that's what I forgot to mention in the previous episode. Andrea did find out when I was like 16. So she knew moving forward. So jumping back to second year, I'm away at the Moody Bible Institute. I was struggling with just severe depression and anxiety because I was continuing to really shove down everything that had happened growing up and and was in some ways continuing to happen from afar in terms of Rick and Chris's spiritual abuse and Chris's verbal and emotional abuse and and even when I went home, like I've mentioned in previous episodes, like I was hit in the face until I was twenty one years old. So wow. yeah, if I went home for Christmas or Thanksgiving or the summer break, like I was still um, subject to physical abuse. Mm-hmm. So there was just, there was a lot and it was, it was hard and it was heavy. And one day in a shocking turn of events, I was actually out in the common room. I was about to say socializing, but I actually don't know if I was socializing. I think I might've been sitting there studying and other people were socializing. <laughs> <That sounds right. laughs> and a young woman who was new to our floor She – this was spring semester, so, like, early in the year, January, February, maybe. She was a transfer student, so I didn't know her very Mm -hmm. well. Plus, I was – you know, I was never around because of all the
1: reasons we discussed. Those weird transfer students.
0: Well, she ended up being part of Saving My Life. Okay. She she was very open about her childhood, and she was telling – some of the other young ladies who were sitting out there and they were all talking about like growing up. And she talked about how she'd been sexually assaulted by her brother. And I thought the freaking sky was going to fall. The Sears tower would collapse. Cause it was, this, <laughs> it was still the Sears tower at that point. It hadn't become Willis tower yet. And true people, true Chicagoans will always call it the Sears tower. I don't care. <laughs> um, but I thought everything was just going to crumble.
1: So is this the first time you've heard something? Yes. I didn't know we
0: could do that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know we were allowed to do that. I was like, I need to get to know her because maybe she could help me figure out how to navigate (laughs) this. She
1: knows something.
0: Yes. She knows something I don't know. She knows you can talk about this without the sky falling. And I was, you know, I was thinking through everything for this episode and I remembered I had sort of kind of almost disclosed to two other people in my lifetime, other than my two sisters at this point. So when I was 17, after I graduated high school, I went to New Zealand and Australia on choir tour with a different choir, not the MSO chorus, long story, different time. But it was the first time I'd been physically away from my brother because I was gone for like a month. And it was the first time I'd been like fully removed from him for that amount of time and fully removed from Rick and Chris for that amount of time. Just like the family chaos. And toward the very end of that trip, the young lady I was rooming with, Mm -hmm. she made me feel very safe. And we had a good bond. And I opened up to her. I don't remember how much. I don't. Well, I might have told her I'd been sexually abused as a child, but I probably didn't tell her. I I didn't tell her who Mm -hmm. or something like that. Or I might not even have gone that far. But she was really sweet. She cared about me a lot. And she like, stayed close to me for the rest of choir tour, which I really appreciated and just kind of was a great friend and support through that. And then the second person who sort of kind of almost knew that something had happened maybe was my, (laughs) Oh God, my roommate the first year, the the good one I really liked. I mean, they weren't, they were all good, but I had been trained to believe the other two were bad because they had boys (laughs) in the room, but the one who was a rule follower like me, she was really upset at someone in her life about something. I'm sure it was perfectly legitimate. And good cult kid and proselytizer that I was raised to be, I started talking to her about bitterness.
1: <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and, and how important
0: again. it is to like not be bitter. And I shared with her that you know something had happened to me, and that I had really good reason to be better with with two people in my life. And for whatever reason, it was like Rick. And Andy. I don't know why I didn't have Chris thrown in there. Probably because she was a woman, so she didn't count. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, um, and I shared with her just, like, my own journey through, like, letting go of bitterness or whatever. And encouraged her to do the same. And I'm, like, cringing just thinking about it. Like, I I feel like we need a pillow as we talk through some of these phases of my life. So I can just, like, hide behind it (laughs) whenever I have to relive a moment that I'm, like, particularly – I don't know if if ashamed is the right word, but just like I'm cringy about, I'm
1: ashamed of it, let's be honest. I mean, you do that when you get shy about something. (laughs)
0: Hide behind pillows. Pillows are amazing for so many reasons, um, but particularly for hiding behind when you don't want to be present for something in your life. So those were the two people who had kind of sort of known Mm -hmm. something about something very big. But with this young woman who had shared the story about her brother, I actually told her, like, hey, that happened to me with my brother, too. I'm really struggling and don't know what to do. So she and I started, like, meeting up and having little chats. And, and before long, we were in the common area kitchen one night, eating ice cream, crying our guts out about our childhoods, not really knowing what to do, feeling very stuck and our wonderful, wonderful resident assistant walked in. Does everyone know what a resident assistant is? I
1: mean, anybody who's gone to college. Knows okay, what so an it's RA like is.
0: yeah, it's just like someone who's kind of like responsible for making sure everyone's okay mm-hmm.
1: on their floor
0: in the dorm, and they're like the liaison between you and all of the school's resources, yeah. and it's
1: just your your guide.
0: Yeah, but at Moody, at the Moody Bible Institute, they were also, like, the rule enforcers <laughs> and the stuff. hall monitor. <laughs> yeah. But Emily was absolutely amazing, and Emily saved my life. She did. Because she walked in that night, and she saw us crying, and she could have walked away. She could have been like, oh, I'm going to give you guys a moment. You're obviously mm. very emotional. But she walked in and took one look at us, like, sobbing and eating ice cream. And she was like, what's going on? Like, she was so worried about us. And I don't know but we what happened i don't know why we decided to do this but the other young lady and i looked at each other and then we looked at emily and we told her everything just like <laughs> Bleh, like word vomit Welcome all of to it. the party and emily just took it all in and she could have she could have done so many things in that moment but what she did was lean in and love us and um she heard us out she told us how you know badly she felt that we'd been through that and and then she started with like okay I'm going to I'm here like I'm in this with you. Let's figure out what we can do, because you both feel stuck. You both don't know what to do. Um, I have some ideas. And she shared with us that the school had just started the week before a group for female survivors of sexual assault. And she was like, I know they started last week, but I can still get you in. It's totally fine. I'm going to get you the book. You're going to read the first chapter of the book. I'm going to take you to the meeting. And make sure you go, and then like I'll be there afterward, and I'll pick you up, and I'll make sure you're okay. And she did.
1: So I have heard this story before, mm-hmm. and Emily is one of my favorite people, and I've never met her, so
0: she's she's really great. But before before I started therapy, Emily offered me one other thing, or like that group therapy. Emily offered me one other thing. There was another woman on our floor who she knew of who had also experienced childhood sexual assault. And she was like, can I talk to her and see if she's in a place where she could, you know, talk to you as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So Emily reached out to this other young woman, and explained my story and asked, like, hey, are you willing for Amanda to come talk with you? And thankfully she was. So we set up a time for me to go over to her dorm room before group therapy. Like, before the group first group therapy session I attended so I could have some practice. Okay. Like, talking pre-game. And, and, like, sharing. Because mm-hmm. I had never shared the story before. Yeah. Never. Not the whole thing. Not to my sisters. Not to anyone.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I went to her dorm room and... It was so freaking surreal, like, sitting there, and it was terrifying, and I spilled my guts about the whole thing, including, like, details of what had happened to me.
2: hmm
0: And I couldn't say all of them at that point. Like, I was still psychologically stuck and, like, too traumatized to verbalize everything, but I said a lot of it. And, and, and she, that...
1: She was in a place where she could hear all of this yeah, or like she yeah. handled it pretty well.
0: She handled it well. I think it was hard on both of us. Yeah. I'm very grateful to it's her
1: for that. It's not an easy thing that. to hear.
0: No, no. And I mean, I was just like sick to my stomach. I felt like I was going to vomit. I shook for days mm-hmm. after telling her that. Not because she didn't make me feel safe, but because like I cannot express in words how momentous of an occasion that was. For me to actually start speaking. Mm-hmm. Like,
1: so do you think the only reason you actually let it all out was because someone told you their story first? Because you said you kind of sort of told these other two people, mm-hmm. and then you run into this lady at college and she's like, just flat out says it. Mm-hmm. Like, do you think that was the, the. I think it gave me permission.
0: I don't know what would have happened in my life. Mm-hmm. had she not shared her story in the common room that night. I don't know. I All I know is as a kid, I knew I wasn't okay. And I had this goal, like, I'm going to be okay someday. I'm going to be okay someday. Like, I will figure this out. I'm going to be okay someday, whatever it takes. But the path to that was very blocked by Rick and Chris and the cult and Andy and, you know, everyone. Mm-hmm. And when I, you know, when I told my sisters, they were both, frustrated that they hadn't known sooner and felt badly that they hadn't known sooner. But they also were like towing party line for like, okay, we're not going to tell anyone else. We're yeah, just going like, to keep, keep the your secret, secret, keep the secret. Yeah. And of course I asked them to, because I, I mean, I didn't even want Rick and Chris to know they knew mm-hmm. because I wasn't supposed to tell anyone. I just, it was, it was such a big deal for me to start opening up and I don't know if I would have eventually gotten there even. Yeah you know, if someone hadn't, but it was, I'm grateful. I'm so grateful because that was life changing for me. So true to her word, Emily walked me and the other young lady to the group. Well, she got us the books and then we had to read the first chapter, which was brutal. Cause when you've been in denial for like your whole fucking life, and then you see everything in black and white on pages in front of you, telling you that what happened to you was sexual assault after your parents had told you it wasn't. Um, and then describing family reactions like what your parents had and saying that they're wrong,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it, it, it like, rocked my entire
1: existence. And I just went into an existential crisis. Well, yeah. I mean, it's the first time you've seen it. You, like, it's in a formal book. You mm-hmm. know, like, there's a class and here's a book. And it's, mm-hmm. like, all in there. Like, mm-hmm. this is spelled out. It's widely known enough to, like, have a book.
0: Yeah. And then there were more books and more books and more <laughs> books and oh my gosh. But I, I really, really loved the ladies in that group and we had we had such a great bond and we we kind of passed the baton being brave <laughs> and because if one of us could start
1: talking, then we would all start talking. Yeah. So how many ladies were in there? Like, um, is just, just like four or five of you? No, or? I
0: think there were like almost 10 of us. Wow. Yeah.
1: That's a lot for a school that size.
0: Well, not really, because one in four females are yeah. sexually assaulted in their lifetime, and the student body was fifteen hundred. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm sure there were a lot left behind, mm-hmm. but well, or just weren't ready to participate so, yeah, in it's something what like I was that. Yeah,
1: just more. Of, that's a lot to like be coming forward and mm-hmm. actually able to talk about it.
0: Mm-hmm. But we started learning. We started learning a vocabulary to discuss what had happened to us. And it was the first time in my life I was told what happened to me wasn't my fault. Mm. And that was a huge moment. And I really had to grapple with that because it went against everything I'd been taught in the cult.
1: Yeah. That's all the curses and, Mm -hmm. you know, you did something to bring this upon yourself. Mm -hmm. And they're telling you the opposite. Like
0: Mm -hmm. Like in the cult, if a young woman was sexually assaulted – the outfit she was wearing at the time of the assault would be analyzed for immodesty. And if it was deemed to be immodest, the sexual assault was her fault. If it was modest, then it wasn't her fault. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, that was part of the uh, Who gets series. to decide
1: this? Uh, the men. But, like, is it a specific like, group um, or? Like, or whatever kind of cult different. men are, you Available. know. Available.
0: <laughs> leadership. Yeah cult men in leadership who are around oh, in your location so or they would like send photos of it into bill and-
1: <laughs> oh that's what he needs yeah. some photos of some young woman
0: it's infuriating it is but that was the first time i realized like i started to try to accept that it wasn't my fault and it was the first time i realized that how rick and chris had handled it was wrong mm-hmm. and i was very supported in that like people were horrified as I started telling the story of how it was handled. Now, granted, a lot of them had been through similar things, Mm -hmm. but like, I, I I have these memories of the therapist who led it. And I just remember her like having this seething look on her face (laughs) when I shared some of my stuff. And I mean, it was terrifying. It was so, 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 so scary. And I think that was a really formative thing for me because I have this like mantra in my life now of do it scared. And every Important thing I've done in my life, I've done terrified, but I do it anyways. And I think that was such a formative moment for me, like walking into that room, knowing I was breaking every rule Mm -hmm. and doing it anyways and doing it utterly terrified. And I, I was sick to my stomach. I wanted to vomit. I shook. And, and that was like my cycle for weeks until I eventually got to the point where it's like, okay, I'm safe here. Like in this room I am safe and no one's going to hurt me and in fact I'm loved here and they care about me and they oh my god they believe me Mm -hmm. like I don't have to prove anything I say Andy strangled me they're like yep we believe you and that was the first time that it happened either so it was it was such a powerful but terrifying experience so (laughs) I start this group in like January right and being me I'm like, well, it's time to confront Rick and Chris. Spring break in March. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fast forward 2 months.
0: Cuz I'm like, we got to get this got to get this show on the road. Like,
1: mm-hmm. we got
0: to right. heal. <laughs> and so I did so much freaking work leading up to spring break in March. I I had this whole file of, like, documents with outlines of how I was going to present it and, like, excerpts from the book and, like, all of this research to prove my point. Again, because what had helped me in the past when I needed to prove a point to Rick? Research. research. Yes. So I – um I did so much prep work, and I waited till the perfect moment on spring break, and I asked them if I could talk to them, asked Rick and Chris if I could talk to them about something important, so we went into their room and shut the door, and I told them what we were going to talk about, that I I needed to talk about the sexual assault. And they freaked the fuck out. And Rick was like, are you going to be that selfish and drag us through this again? And he was so mad, and Chris was so mad, and like... Fucking go me. I was like, yes, we're going to talk about it. And you need to hear this. And I need to say this. Sit down. I like basically like I stood up for myself to them and I'm so proud of it looking back. And in the moment I was proud of it because I knew how hard it was for me as particularly a daughter, Mm -hmm. as a female in that environment to be like, no, you will hear me. I Mm. will. I will speak. And you will hear. And I I stayed calm. I stayed respectful. But I said my piece, even as they yelled at me. Like, I had it. I think I had portions of it written. And I just kept reading it while they yelled at me. And I was like, (laughs) you will hear this. I will say this. I will speak this. And eventually, Rick stormed out of the room, stormed out of the house, drove off. Chris was like, we have to go after him. So she grabs me, grabs the keys, gets in the other car, goes Caring after him and looks over at me and goes, if he kills himself tonight, it's on your head.
1: They just fucking love doing that, don't they? Just putting all the yeah. responsibility on It was all my fault because I brought it up. Right.
0: So eventually we found him in a parking lot and convinced him to come home. And then I forget how that whole situation got wrapped up. But... The, the bottom line was they were furious that I was going to therapy. They were furious that I was talking about it. They were furious that I was part of the group. They told me that, cause I had told them like how you handled this was wrong. And this is what happened to me. And it was a crime and like all this stuff. And they Mm -hmm. said that the group was feeding me lies About my parents, about the family, about how they handled it, that they hadn't done anything wrong, that, like, I was being influenced by, like, secular whatever. I'd gone off to college and (laughs) gone bad and, you know, all this stuff that the cult said would happen if you went off to college. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: It was true because I was case in point. Like, I had gone bad. And and so they wanted me to leave the group and I was like, no, this group is helping me. It's helping me stay like stable. It's helping with my mental health. It's helping me heal. And they were like, Well, you can go to the group or you can have your health insurance. Pick one. Cause I couldn't afford my own health insurance. Fucking hate them. (laughs) And I so I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought about it. And I was so sick and I needed the health insurance. Mm -hmm. So and it here get this. It wasn't It wasn't you have to leave the group. It was to keep your health insurance. You have to go back to the group one more time. You can't stay for the whole session. You're going to stay long enough to apologize to the group for telling them lies about your parents and family, and then you'll go and then you'll leave. So I went back to the group and it was, it was such a horrible moment, but I went back and I told them that I had been wrong about everything and I apologized to them for spreading lies about my family and parents and how I never should have said it. And then I I had to like say goodbye and I got up and walked out and like the faces on these I women. Bet they
1: were probably all like, jaw they were shocked.
0: I was a leader in that group
1: to yeah, the point. Took the first step.
0: Yeah. where like, if none of us were speaking, the therapist would look at me and be like, Hey Amanda, do you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like, no. And then I, you know, do it anyways. Mm-hmm. And I feel horrible looking back. Cause like, how much harm did i cause as yeah. as an informal leader in that group being like no nope, i was wrong about everything and then walking away and right. and not just walking away from the group but walking away from them and being like i removed myself as part of their support system too mm-hmm. and it's it is just oh, that that memory still makes me sick um I I loved them all so much, and I cared about them all so much, and like I broke that bond we all had.
1: Yeah, at least with me, put in a very tough situation, like your parents once again manipulated you and were holding your health insurance hostage. Mm -hmm. So and they didn't know
0: that, like none of the like nobody knew that. Yeah,
1: I mean they didn't tell you to go tell them that. (laughs) You know, tell you to go, or they didn't tell you to go to the group and say I have to keep my health insurance because my parents don't want me to tell you any of this stuff like
0: you know i just remembered something i called that therapist like years and years and years later i found her number
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and i called her and this was after you know i i'd healed a bunch um and i was away from my family and i called her up and i explained the whole thing to her and she was so quiet for a minute and she was like thank you so much for telling me i have wondered and wondered what happened yeah i wish i could find every single one of them and tell them how sorry I am and how much I love them and and how much I've thought of them over the years and hope that they're okay and that they healed and I mean I was so ashamed in that moment walking out of there that day because I wasn't living my values like I was protecting myself by keeping my health insurance which I desperately needed but I wasn't like I am a truth honesty authenticity transparency person and I I went in there and lied. Like, I just went in there and lied mm-hmm. and said a bunch of stuff I didn't even believe. That story, and, and then the one I'm about to tell, should, should tell you everything you need to know about the kind of power the cult's ideology had over people.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Because my parents would never have freaking known if I had been like, yeah, I stopped going, but I kept going mm-hmm. in reality. They they never – like, I could have hid that from them. I could have lied about it. I could have something. But Satan's fiery darts and the umbrella <laughs> of protection and always telling the truth and everything. Like, mm-hmm. I knew that if they asked me later, which they were going to do, and of course they did, I couldn't lie. Mm-hmm. Like, I couldn't – I couldn't tell that lie to an authority figure. Yeah. Like, I could walk into that room because my authorities told me to go say all that shit I didn't believe. But I couldn't lie up the chain like that. Mm-hmm. And – just the the amount of control they had, even though I was in a different state.
1: Yeah. You living were, on my own. Yeah, you were you were gone. I assume they weren't really coming to check on you. I'm assuming uh, that happened a couple times, but they weren't like showing a couple up times, every day. But not day frequently. Or, like I know. think
0: twice in the first two years or a day. Yeah.
1: That's normal, but
0: And then the next the next story that kinda of demonstrates just this absolute control they had. So, you know, me and my younger siblings, were growing up, we're getting to the age where like courtship is a near possibility in terms of our age and you know like getting into young adulthood and starting to notice like oh i find people attractive mm-hmm. like normal humans might experience but we weren't allowed to because we weren't normal humans
1: we were robots did you have like those emotions still though like did you still have like butterflies when you were like oh that i you know that guy's cute like, did you still have, like, those uh
0: Yeah, but I had, feelings? like, no sexual interest, which was a me problem because I hadn't healed from sexual assault. Okay. I wasn't interested in sleeping with anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I was interested in, like, an emotionally connective relationship,
2: mm-hmm. but
0: I wasn't super interested in any physicality okay. at that time anyways, which is hysterical because all Chris talked about was how I was a cheap slut because I liked a boy and how I was going to get pregnant.
1: <laughs> I, I, yeah. I just don't even understand. I mean, you would think there's this girl, or you know, young woman, or even like an older woman now that's like been raped. You don't think you're just a slut? Like, well, that's probably like the least. No. A common, like to me, common to, to, sense wise. Yes. Like, well, okay. Think. So
0: it can go a couple different <laughs> ways. And it's like survivors get to choose how they heal. Mm-hmm. Like they just do. And some people heal by saying like, nope, I'm I'm taking a break from all that. I'm not interested in it. Right. And some people heal by going, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to reclaim my own sexuality and do this on my yeah. terms. I
1: mean, that makes sense too. Right?
0: And then there's also a category of of people, and this is like well documented, and this is not a judgmental thing at all. So please know that. But they, they think that they've lost all their value or like all men are interested in them for his sex or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. And this is very much from the female perspective because I'm not a man. I've, um, I've talked to some men about their experiences as sexual assault survivors, but I've talked to like thousands of women about their experiences. So I'm, I'm very familiar with that. So you have like the, okay, I'm just going to be like not interested in sex. You have the, hey, I'm going to reclaim my sexuality on my own terms to be empowered. And then you have the like, well, all I'm good for is sex or I'm worthless or I'm mm-hmm. dirty. So so I'm just going to like put myself out there and whatever happens, happens. And all three are common ways people respond mm-hmm. and they do not need to be judged for how they respond. They need to be accepted. <laughs> And given space to heal. And I talk about all of that in my book in depth. Like that was a very cursory verbal overview that I just gave. There's there's a lot more nuance to that. So don't just take it and run with it. Like recognize that this is a very complex topic with a lot of nuance. And I, I speak about that in other forums. But if you have questions, always feel free to contact us. But where was I going with that? I get on these educational tangents. This is, but well, this is me, guys. So, like this is my heart. <laughs>
1: so since, so this is the first time you've brought it up, and mm-hmm. I know we'll get to that point in life. But you did write a book about how to respond when, when someone tells
0: you about sexual assault. Yeah,
1: that's literally the title: How to Respond When <laughs> Someone Tells You About Sexual Assault. Very uh-huh. straightforward. No, no guessing what's in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, but you did write a book about that. Yeah. Um. A couple years ago, yes, and that is out there on.
0: It's available through Amazon and Barnes and Noble as an ebook currently. Yeah, there was supposed to be an audiobook and a hardcover book this year, <laughs> and instead, I went through a lot of health battles. So hopefully next year.
1: Yeah. But, Still- and
0: it's under Amanda J. Rivers. I I wasn't going to change my name, but then I like really liked Kyle, <laughs> so I changed my name. But yeah, that's a resource. And I I go way more in depth about the topic of like how people respond to healing from sexual assault. And and when I say way more in depth, like more nuanced than we just talked about, the book is intentionally a quick read Mm -hmm. for people who are like in crisis and don't have a lot of time or emotional energy and just need like, okay, give me the basics. Give me the basics. So that's what the book is. But Chris and Rick, the lovely bios, had been told by someone, somewhere, don't know who, don't know when, don't know how it came up, but they had a belief that I was going to be promiscuous, and that was a cult word, promiscuous, because I'd been sexually assaulted. I, yeah. They did I, not know me.
1: No. Like, I one mean, tiny little bit. I, I mean, maybe, maybe I just don't understand it, because to me, like, if I ran across a kid... Had been sexually assaulted. I know we just ran through this. Like, that is the last thing I would think was going to happen. Like, I would think this kid would just be scared of sex, didn't want to be touched, didn't, like, you know, (laughs) they're just going to turn into a nun and, like, until they heal. Mm -hmm. But, like, by default, I would think, you know, in my head, that's how I would have reacted without more information. And I know better now, but, like, still my default reaction is just, like... That's, that's not what's going to happen. Like, it's crazy that you think that's what's going to happen.
0: Well, I want to I pause and say something I really appreciate about you, Kyle, is that you are so open to being educated about stuff. From the beginnings of our relationship, we've had really amazing conversations around topics that just weren't part of your world until me. I mean, I don't know how many times we sat in your pickup truck and just like had Hours and hours and hours of conversation with you asking me questions and wanting to know better and do better and be better about topics that are really difficult and complex. So I adore that
1: about you. And well, you were writing the book when I met you, and so <laughs> I read it many, many times and listened to it many, many times, and that's true. I kind of I learned very quickly just because I think that was. A big part of your life at the time. hmm So. But I appreciated that about you.
0: But anyways, yeah. So I think that's part of why I wasn't allowed to have a car or a driver's license. I think they thought that if I had any freedom, <laughs> I would just go get pregnant. Like, have yep. sex with everyone and have triplets and like. <laughs>
1: you can't give her a car. She'll be out there hooking on the corner. Like,
0: oh my God. Did you? <sighs> so that was, um. So, okay, so we got on that huge tangent because I was saying that me and my younger siblings got to an age where we were like, huh, this is when one would normally start dating and, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. And I liked Noah back home. He had stayed in Wisconsin. My younger brothers were starting to like girls. And we would keep up with each other on Facebook. And Rick and Chris decided that that was just as bad as dating – like, you couldn't talk to them, and you can't form emotional connections and defraud each other like that. <laughs> uh, so, Rick sends out this email, and anytime there was an email blast, it was, like, such bad news. It was always some horrible mandate from Rick about the next thing we all had to do. I don't think – well, I know for a fact my other siblings didn't obey them fully – <laughs> or at all. But I like saw it and I was like the word of god has spoken. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Praise be to god or whatever, you know, like the cult like that was that was the ingrained response. Mm. And maybe it was worse cuz I was a female and so I'd been raised with like a very, well the man has spoken, the word of god has has come upon us like
1: Yeah, I mean, everything so far about the cult is like The males are creating the rules and then Mm -hmm. also don't feel the need to obey them.
0: Correct. And if you get outside of them, Satan's fiery darts,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) open to satanic influence, strongholds in your heart, like all this shit, right? So Rick sends out this email mandating that none of us are allowed to log into Facebook for a month so that we can (laughs) like have a break and like cleanse from all of this. And I, I see it and I'm like, shit. Cause that, that was like the only way I knew I couldn't really talk to Noah, but like he would update his status and I would know kind of like basically what was going on in his life. And I would update my status and he would basically know what was going on in my life. And it was kind of the way we kept in touch without staying in touch. And I would only see him like if we happened to cross paths when I went home for break and stuff. And I was still like, I think honestly, I'd been in love with him since I was like, Fourteen, mm-hmm. and, you know, in a very fourteen-year-old way, but
1: it's still real emotions.
0: Yeah, and and so I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. So I emailed back and said, like, okay, I got it. I'll I'll do it. And um,
1: so was Rick emailing just you, or was he emailing the both of you?
0: Not Noah, but okay. like me and my younger brothers, okay, who liked girls. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't think the youngest one. I don't got think it.
1: I ever to this day have got an email from my mom.
0: Yeah, so I'm like, crap. So I I have to I have to do this. So I sign out of Facebook and all my friends are like, You did like why are you doing exactly. this? Like what is your dad said you can't be on Facebook for a month? Like, what is the point of that? Like what? And I was like, Well, that's that's what I have to do. Like, those are the rules. And I am expected to obey them and I have to obey them. And
1: I think it just kind of outlines how ingrained and I know you've already said this, like how ingrained you were to just follow rules. Mm Because most time and anybody who's been to college knows Mm -hmm. that like freshman year, like sophomore year, like people go crazy. Like and you can tell the kids that were like raised in very strict homes And they're just, like, out of the house the first time. And they're just, like, let loose on everything. They have no self-control. They're just, like, trying everything, staying up all night partying, like, disobeying every rule. Because they're just like, I'm free, finally. Yeah, no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You still didn't do that. Like, that would have been normal. I have
0: one buddy who gives me so much shit about this. But, like, the craziest thing I ever did in college was, like, I went, I let my... My roommates and some other friends talked me into like walking down to Cold Stone at nine o'clock at night when I should have been studying. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was Amanda really getting a party on. Well, after I left therapy, group therapy, like obviously my mental health started to decline again. Shocker. And I got so depressed and suicidal. It It was really bad. It was really scary. I've been kicking back and forth about sharing this or not. If if you struggle with mental health or suicidality just like skip forward a little bit. Um I'm going to try to share this very delicately, but I got to the point where every day, several times a day, I would go over to this window. And I lived in Chicago mm-hmm. and it was, you know, a high rise and that window opened. And I would stand there with my hand on the latch and I really really wanted to jump and i would do that like day after day after day multiple times a day like i just need i just wanted to end i just wanted to end and one day it got so bad and i had like o- like i was there i was going to open the window and i called my younger brother and i realized like because that's who i called he must have known i don't remember telling him i don't remember telling aaron or adam
2: mm-hmm. like i
0: don't remember when that was but i think they were like older um I think Aaron was probably 18 when I told him because at this point in the story, I think I'm almost 20, which would have made him about 18, I think. And Adam, maybe Adam didn't know yet. I don't know. But Aaron knew or at least knew something was wrong with like I was going through some stuff. So I called him and I was like, I'm really not okay. I'm really, really not okay." And when we were younger, Aaron and I were really close. We kind of. Um, I, I haven't talked to him in forever. I don't know if he's still this way, but I found out at the end of high school that he had been like pathologically lying to me for Mm -hmm. years and years and years. And that broke my trust like immediately. (laughs) And so I started like distancing from him, but for whatever reason, he was the person I called that day and he got really scared and he got Rick on the phone and Rick got mad at me for being depressed and suicidal. (laughs) Of course. Which really helped. Mm-hmm. Really, really helped. Um, but, you know, Kyle, um, having mental health issues isn't godly.
2: Oh. Mm-hmm.
0: And also, I was bringing up the sexual assault again, which we could not have. hmm Rick decides, like, okay, like, don't kill yourself. I'll be down there, like, tomorrow or the next day. And he drove down to Chicago and took me out for lunch. And I got a stern talking to- about you know my lack of godliness, but also um, Rick decided he should go home and check on Andy and see how Andy was coping because he'd never really checked in with him about <laughs> that. After that whole thing, Rick and Chris decided I was allowed to go to individual counseling as long as it was with a Christian counselor. Rick and Chris approved of.
1: I am surprised they even had a list.
0: Well, I did all the work, and then, like, they, I had to send it oh. to them for approval. <laughs>
1: that makes more sense.
0: Um, so she she took my insurance, and um, I paid all the co-pays, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm paying for this. And after several sessions, I get to an appointment one day, and she's like, hey, a donor has made a contribution for your care, and it'll cover your co-pays for a while. And I was like, interesting, and she couldn't tell me who it was. Hmm. Um, I found out later it was Andy and Rick and Chris had made him do it as restitution.
1: The whole restitution thing—it blows my mind that they, yeah. they're just like he can buy his way out of this.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, it gets Eventually. better. Eventually, so then Andy was sent down to Chicago to spend a weekend with me <laughs> to repair our sibling relationship, and it was so awkward because I was just like I didn't want to be around him. Like I, I was like in therapy about him raping me, mm-hmm. and I had to spend a weekend with him. So I just tried to stay busy and keep other friends like, hey, you can meet my friends and we'll do this and that. But then, like, people had lives and, mm-hmm. and like, they couldn't spend the whole weekend with me. So I took him to Navy Pier because it's, like, busy there and lots of people. But then I had to get in a Ferris wheel alone with him. Like, do you know how horrible it is to get in a Ferris wheel with your rapist?
1: I I mean, I like, don't. Like, enclosed
0: in a – oh, God.
1: I don't think anybody would have blamed you if you would have pushed him out from the top, though. Oh,
0: my God. That that wasn't on my mind. I was more like, "How can I not be here?" Yeah. So then that summer, I go home for for summer break, and Rick and Chris decide Andy and I need to go on a bonding
1: trip. That's just still keeping with the same stupid
0: line of <laughs> thinking. Yes. So so we went to New York City and Boston with with a friend, and Andy had to pay for my ticket and some other stuff again as restitution. So I had to go spend a week with my rapist running around. And, and like, I was just in fight or flight constantly, mm-hmm. you know, like around him, like I didn't trust him. And, and oh, and Rick and Chris had made us take a drive together out to, to Lake Michigan because we lived near it Um, when I was home one time. So and so he could like apologize because he told me when he apologized as a kid, he'd never meant it. He was just sorry he got caught. <laughs> So then we had to like go out there and have this long conversation about what happened and like our sibling relationship and
1: God and like, I don't know what else, but Mm. it was,
0: I was like alone in a car with him after dark yeah, with a guy who raped me.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, this is another point where it's like the brainwashing in, in the cult ideology so deep that you weren't just like, I'm an adult. Fuck off. Like I am never seeing you again.
0: No, and and he told me how I had like harmed Rick.
1: Oh, that God. was a
0: big part of it. Like my rebellion was harming Rick
1: because mm-hmm. the
0: whole thing, like me going to therapy, me talking about it, all of this stuff, was framed as Amanda's rebellion.
1: It just like doesn't stop. Like the the horrible parenting just doesn't stop.
0: No, so I got so sick from all the stress of all of this shit that. I had to leave college for three years between my junior and senior year. Like, I was so sick I couldn't function. I Well, like, my my junior year, I was so sick I could only work, like, three jobs instead of four. And Rick was furious with me because I needed a student loan. Like, I couldn't manage it with just the three jobs. Mm -hmm. So I needed a student loan, and it took me forever because I – I mean, I didn't have a credit card because we weren't allowed to do credit. We weren't allowed to, like – no loans, nothing. I had no credit history at all.
1: Are they just trying to, like, keep you guys, like, off the grid? Is well, that like- was
0: part of the cult thing. Like, you can't have debt because the Bible says no debt.
1: Okay. So, it wasn't just like a, we're trying to hide you from no. the government. No.
0: because I had, like, okay. a social security card
1: and okay. like, all that kind of stuff.
0: Um, and I got all my shots as a kid mm-hmm. and, like, all that kind of stuff. Um but i was i was a failure i was like such a failure at that point because well andrea she never had to get a student loan your siblings never had to get a student loan and the thing that was different was andrea had a resume when she went off to college she'd already like worked for years and years and she mm-hmm. had a resume so she was able to get like a job that paid decently and she might have done something else on the side in addition to that. I don't remember. But like her her job was good enough that she could support herself.
2: Yeah. Maybe. I was
0: like this 17-year-old mm-hmm. who had a couple years. I was – well, I turned 18 right after I got there. So I had like two years of work history because I started working when I was 16. I started working multiple jobs. And before that, I babysat and stuff. But like, you know, I had I had two years of resume. And I was in the city of Chicago. Like the kinds of jobs that were available to me were long, hard hours. I did a lot of manual labor and I didn't get paid a whole lot. So I had to like stack the jobs together to to make up what Andrea made at one job. Right. And, you know, the same with Andy and um, Amy was closer to like a normal college age, but she she had a resume too when she went to work. And the other thing was like, we came from this town where you could get a job it was a smaller city.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so like my sisters could get jobs at the banks and stuff. Right. Whereas like you, you're competing in Chicago yeah. <laughs> and you're, you're 18. Like mm-hmm. your options are very different. It's, it's a very different work environment, but I was constantly held to that standard of like, well, your siblings didn't need this, but my siblings also didn't have my medical bills.
1: And I mean, stuff. There's, there's that, like there's the equity of like, okay, well you're comparing a healthy person to a, person that's got medical issues, like there's going to be some difference in, in what happens there. But on top of all of that, it's like, they did nothing to prepare you to have a successful career No, coming out of high school. And then they're pissed off that you're not making a lot of money. It's just like, you fucking, you did that. (laughs) That was your fault as a parent. Like you fucked that up and now you're mad about it.
0: Yeah. It was rough. So I I eventually, like, I did get a student loan for part – and it wasn't even the whole bill. It was just a small part of the bill Mm -hmm. um, for that semester, but that was the end of the world. And I was a failure and a bad Christian and all of that and dishonoring God with my debt. At the end of that year, I decided, like, well, I I can't just keep taking out student loans because that's not allowed. So I took a break, and I was like, I'm just going to get my health sorted. And then I'll go back and I'll be able to work all the jobs and it'll be okay. But I I kept working through this period and things got so, so bad at home that I decided to take a job in Massachusetts, providing care for an elderly lady just to get away. And the reason I picked that specific job, which ended up being just a a horrible environment for me was I could live with her and I could use her car. And I had my driver's license by then because I was 20, almost 21. Mm-hmm. And I got my driver's license when I was 20. Finally, they let me get it. And I say let me because, like, I still had to complete hours and they wouldn't, like, take me driving and stuff. So it was Yeah, just, it's kind of it hard very... if you don't
1: have someone that's going to let you borrow their car to Or, like, practice, be or... with
0: you in the car. Mm-hmm. And it, it was horrible when they did because, like, they would both just scream all the time. Like, they didn't teach me how to drive. They just yelled at me. And I, like, read a book and figured out how to drive. So, I was really sick. I was... Um, misdiagnosed with a bunch of stuff. I was actually on life support drugs for a good period of that three year chunk where I was away from college. And during that time, Noah and I reconnected and started a relationship that was not approved by Rick and Chris. But before I left college, I had, I had sat down with a professor, a man, of course, cause like authority and also Moody didn't really hire female professors um, to teach theology. But I was like, Hey, I have a question. Cause I've been told my whole life that honor equals obey, like honoring your parents equals obeying them. Like I'm 20 years old. I am supporting myself. I would like to make some choices about my life, but I'm told that if I do that, I'm dishonoring my parents because I am disobeying them. Mm -hmm. And he like took me through. And of course, like Hebrew Greek and everything was like, no, that's not what it means. Like honor is different than obey. You don't have to like you are an adult. You do not have to obey your parents. You can make your own choices. You are responsible for your own life. Like be free. And like, I didn't know what to do with that.
1: So he wasn't in the cold. Then. No,
0: no. I mean, Moody was still very conservative. And maybe if I had talked to someone else, they would have told me something different. Mm-hmm. So I I took that and I was like, okay, I'm going to try it. We'll just see if God smites me. But Noah and I started a relationship. I, But I still moved away to Massachusetts. I got worse, like my health just kept declining. And eventually I was like, okay, I've got to move back to Wisconsin where my doctors are who like actually know my case and have been following it for a long time. So I I left that job, moved back, and sadly moved back in with Rick and Chris, which was horrible. There was a treatment that my doctor wanted to try. That was going to be really, really intense. And Noah and I talked about it and decided that we would like to be married for that. We were already planning to get married because we'd known each other for like 10 years before we started a romantic relationship. We met when we were 10 and 12. So we decided to move our wedding up six months. So with just like a couple months left before the wedding. And Rick and Chris came to me and told me that I had to move out because um, I just caused Chris too much stress being there in the home. And this was after like Rick had told me my whole life I would always have a home with them. And mm-hmm. so I went well, the way that all went down is I went to him and I was like, hey, Noah and I are gonna get married in July. And I think it was um probably like March or April at this point. And I was like, and, and then we're gonna move in together because we weren't allowed to live together until marriage. We weren't allowed to sleep together until marriage, like all the mm-hmm. like all that stuff. So I was like, we're we're getting married in just a couple months. I'd really it would really help me, like, financially. And also I was I was having enough medical problems that I I it was really unsafe for me to live alone. So I explained all of this and they knew how sick I was, like they knew everything going on. And I was like, can I just live here for a couple months until I move out when Noah and I get married. And Rick was like, well, I think maybe that will work. But like, let me talk to your mom. But like, yeah, you'll always have a home here.
1: <laughs> so but maybe
0: not. So then um, like a week goes by and I he hadn't given me an answer and he and Chris were gone. They they were at a basketball tournament for one of my younger brothers. So it would have been March. So I call Rick and I'm like, hey, just wanted to follow up. Like, am I good to live here until July? And he, And that's when he was like, no. No, you're not. I talked to your mom and it, you just stress her out so much being around. So, so you need to move out. And I was like, okay, all right. So Noah was pissed. Cause like we all knew I, I, I wasn't safe to live alone. So my friend Mandy that I mentioned previously, mm-hmm. like God bless her forever. She worked um, for Panera at the time in Massachusetts. So she got them to transfer her to the Panera in my town in Wisconsin. So she got to keep her job and she moved there. Wow. And um, I got this horrible little apartment. Like it was all I could afford. It was very unsafe. And, but it was within walking distance of my job. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then Mandy was there for my medical emergencies. Cause like Noah wasn't allowed to
1: mm-hmm.
0: cause I, ideology around purity culture Ugh. so
1: she was you guys are like roommates mm-hmm. like sharing that apartment mm-hmm.
0: and she stayed there until the wedding she was in the wedding and then she was getting ready to move out of the country so she moved away at that point but rick and chris were mad when i moved out they <laughs> threw a hissy fit
1: again like i'm
0: like what the like you told me i wasn't allowed to live here so i went and got an apartment and now you're mad at me mm-hmm.
1: like yeah, you didn't move in with your boyfriend, you or your fiance, like you moved in with you know, one my of your girlfriend. Friends. And it's like where what did you what did they I don't expect? Know. I
0: don't know. That you were just it was the live craziest along? thing cuz like Noah and a different friend who happened to be visiting at the time, they went into the house with me and helped me pack up all my stuff and leave and like Chris was yelling, she was rude to my friends, like it was so bad. And that was that was common for Chris, like she often tried to embarrass me. In front of people that she knew I cared about. And then with the wedding, Rick, after like blackballing me because I'm the worst, suddenly, you know, Noah and I announced our engagement and Rick is like super involved and he he wants his name on the invitation and he wants to walk me down the aisle and like all this stuff because he's my father. And of course, the transfer of authority, like he's got to be there. Oh, my gosh. So so we. I put up with all of their stuff and there was so much pressure. Like I had to involve all of the siblings and Andy had to be given a role. Jeez. So I had to make sure Andy had a role at my wedding.
1: Like. No. no. <laughs> I
0: Jeez. Uh, it breaks my brain to think the, back at this The dynamics
1: just blow my mind every single time. Like they, they don't fucking care about you, but they like must maintain control. And then yeah. like, your mom just completely is just checked out and can't handle any sort of emotion or you know oh no amanda's here like i can't handle it yeah and and then your dad's just like flip-flopping back and forth like i'm really involved just kidding
0: he just and and he showed up and i called them the plastics because he he was smiling like walking mm. me down the aisle but like he ignored me yeah. the rest of the day like he never even told me i looked nice Or anything. And Chris was screaming at me until five minutes before I walked down the aisle, like screaming. And my bridesmaids didn't know what to do and tried to like stand (laughs) between us. And like, they had heard stories about her Mm -hmm. by this point, but like they, they saw it up close and personal that day. So then, um, Rick did a toast at the reception that wasn't a toast, it was an altar call. Mm-hmm. He used his speech that should have been about like me, his daughter to try to proselytize my guests. <laughs> oh. That was real fun. <laughs> and then he used the father daughter dance to try to manipulate me since, um, Noah and I had decided not to disclose where we were going for our honeymoon. Um, mm, just secrets. We needed like some form of like privacy from our families. Mm-hmm. His family is a whole other story that for another time. But we, we decided to, like, keep that to just us. And it. so we get to the father-daughter dance, and Rick starts telling me, like, as, as my dad, he needs to tell – I need to tell him because he's telling me to tell him. And it was the first time in my life I was able to say no without 25 pages of, like, documents and research and all that kind of stuff because he had to accept that he had just transferred authority, authority to, to Noah. Else. <laughs> so I told him no. Wow. Like, no, I don't have to do that anymore. And he had to shut up. And he did shut up. Because, like, according to his own ideology, he didn't own me anymore.
1: He had given me away. They they hold on to the weirdest things. Like, they create these rules. And then they just kind of will bend and break them. And then they hold on strong to some of them like this. Where he's just like, oh, I transferred authority. Like, Mm -hmm. shit. But, you know, all this other stuff. They're like, no, that you know, we don't really need to follow that one. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's weird the ones that they like pick and choose that they're actually gonna follow, and the ones that mm-hmm. they don't.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously, I am no longer in that marriage, um, and things unfortunately started going downhill, like on the honeymoon, which I don't, I don't want to talk about right now. Maybe, maybe someday, if I write that book or something, it was just a very. Emotionally painful experience and basically foreshadowed the entire marriage that ended eight and a half years later. Um, and I stayed that long because ingrained ideology. Mm-hmm. I don't know, we'll talk about that someday. Maybe that's a,
1: that's a whole other series, it's a whole other thing. <laughs>
0: um, but I continued to become more and more ill, and in a little over two years since I left school for illness, I finally Mm -hmm. ended up at a neurologist in Chicago who was just another person who saved my life. He was like, he took one look at me and was like, Amanda, we are going to get to the bottom of this. Like, this is ridiculous. Cause I'd been so many, I'd been to so many doctors Mm -hmm. in so many different places and he knew all of this. And he was like, no, you're going to stay here until I figure it out. And he asked me like, can I admit you to the hospital because there are so many specialists I want you to see. And there's so many tests I want to run and they're not covered by your insurance. And I, I had my own insurance with Noah at this point, we were married. He was like, they're not covered by your insurance if you're outpatient, but they immediately like the whole thing becomes in network with your insurance if you're inpatient. Mm-hmm. So can I admit you to the hospital until I figure this out? And I was like, sure. Wasn't planning on that, but <laughs> Okay. And so I got admitted to the hospital and right away they like hooked. I had all of the brain scans and, and like, I think I mentioned before, like my heart, liver, kidneys, they -hmm. were all shutting down. They did all these, like for a week I was there and Noah had to go back to work in Wisconsin because his job wouldn't let him have time off. So guess who ended up staying with me in the hospital for a week, Kyle?
1: Mm mandy chris oh no
0: it was so bad
1: <laughs> i was hopeful that it, it was, was a good so, experience so
0: so bad and uh but it was it was life-changing because um all of the tests like help them figure out like okay you everything that like you've been treated for and been diagnosed with like those were misdiagnoses you are not like organically your body's okay Mm -hmm. like we have run every single test on you you are okay what is going on with you um well they had a team of eventually finally they were like okay let's bring the neuropsychologists in Mm -hmm. so they came in they talked to me i told them my whole story of sexual assault at that point and and just like all the trauma and they ran their tests and determined i had ptsd and they they Very specifically spelled it out, and Chris was in the room when they did it. You have PTSD from childhood sexual assault and trauma.
1: Did she just leave?
0: Oh, she was was like, the look on her face, like, I don't even know the words to describe it, but I'll never forget the look on her face. And then she was, like, silently panicked, and then there were a lot of, like, hushed, urgent phone calls in the hallway, and... Was it they, like a
1: oh shit look on her face, or just like an angry look? Or I think it
0: was like the cat's out of the bag.
1: Oh, oh okay, yeah. that makes sense too. Yeah,
0: like oh wow, I guess she didn't forget about it, <laughs> like she was supposed to. And they, the, everyone, oh my gosh, they were so wonderful to me. They were so so wonderful to me, and they brought me a list of all of the psychologists who were like good at treating PTSD who were in network with my insurance. Like it was very Mm -hmm. specific. And I looked through the list and I found someone who's, um, who spoke English and Hebrew. And I was like, well, I know a little bit of Hebrew. Like maybe that'll be a like, yeah. Like maybe, maybe I'll feel comfortable with like, Mm -hmm. maybe they'll understand me or something. And it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. And it was such a brave decision because it was a man. And I had never talked to a man about this before. It was like, it doesn't matter. Like, man or woman, just doesn't matter. I just need to get better. Like, mm-hmm. I need to be okay. And this is the person my gut is telling me can help me get there. And I, like, to this day, I just marvel at it. He, the psychologist I worked with to recover from PTSD, is an internationally renowned PTSD expert. Don't know how the fuck I got an appointment with him. Like, he just happened to take my insurance. He just happened to be accepting patients. I got in with him and he's another person who saved my life. I, I had my first appointment with him um in October of the year I started treatment and you know we we got in there and I was so scared and I there were words I couldn't even say and we we got through kind of like my orientation appointment and he looked at me and he was so compassionate. He was like, "Amanda, I know it's hard right now." It's 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 October, okay? By Thanksgiving, you're going to be doing better by Christmas. You're going to be doing lots better. And by, by new year's, you're not going to need me anymore. And he,
1: that's pretty aggressive,
0: but it was true. It was so true. And that's exactly how it went. And I did exposure therapy, which is brutal. They have other forms. Um, I know a lot of people use EMDR now, which is also great. I've done EMDR for other stuff. I love it. But what, ended up being just very effective for me for PTSD at the time was exposure therapy. So for those Mm -hmm. of you who are not familiar with it, you, um, you bring a recording device (laughs) to your session. I used my phone and you kind of like set it up and you, you have to bring like the worst memory you have of the trauma and you close your eyes and you describe it in first person, present tense in as much detail as you can so like he is walking toward me and so on and so on Mm -hmm. through like the worst memory you have the scariest hardest memory you have and then you take that recording home and you listen to it two or three times a day and then you go back the next week because that like floods all of the memories Mm -hmm. that you forgot flush it out yeah and then you and then you do the whole you repeat the whole thing again recording it first person present tense Um, describing everything with all the new details you remembered. And and you run through that until you're not afraid of the memory anymore. Mm -hmm. And then you start the next worst memory. (laughs) (laughs) Most people have to do like five to seven. I think I did like three before I was, um, I no longer met the criteria for having PTSD. And in the midst of all this. um,
1: So you just did three sessions of this? No, like,
0: so I worked with him from October and then in like this, First week of January, I was declared PTSD free. Wow! Yeah, he's he's very good. And but like all, like I'll own that I showed up and I did the work, and Mm. it was so hard. And there were so many days I didn't want to. And there were so many times I didn't want to go to my appointment. And you know, I'm not married to my ex husband for very good reasons. But one thing that he did very well was get me through that and he would take time off work. Um, We lived like more in the Milwaukee area of Wisconsin and he would drive me like an hour, an hour and a half into Chicago every week for those appointments, sit there through my appointment because then he could drive me home while I melted down Mm -hmm. or while I just zoned out and listened to Broadway musicals on CD because we still had CD players in cars back then. And so like he did that very well and I had a good group of friends who knew what was going on and they supported me through that time as well. I mean, it was brutal. It was hard, but I showed up and I did it and I, I did the work and it, it set me free. And like my favorite way to talk about it, it was like the world was in color for the first time in my life because I'm sitting here talking to Kyle. I'll get emotional. <laughs> um, don't normally get emotional at this point, but I mean, it's beautiful.
1: I mean, it sounds like a really hard thing to go through to, like, one have to recall that. Yeah. And then literally listen to it over and over and over again and yeah. then go back and recall it again in more yeah. detail and then listen to that over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a brutal cycle. But, I mean, it, it works. It is. And, know. they like,
0: they have gentler therapies now, like EMDR and um somatic exercises and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But it it was just – it was just incredible. Like, that load came off of me that I'd carried my entire life, like, the three-ton trailer I'd hauled behind me my whole life. Mm -hmm. I just – I just let it go. And it's somewhere back there on the road. And, like, I healed. Like, I genuinely healed. And – If you're hearing this podcast and you're a trauma survivor, like I just want you to know it's possible to get here. And that it's there's so much hope and beauty in life. Even for people who've gone through just unthinkable things. Like it's healing is possible in a good, beautiful life where you have joy and healthy relationships and people who love you and, and safety. Like that is genuinely possible and anyone who tells you differently doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about so don't listen to them and it it can take a while to find the right therapist like i went through multiple therapists at you know other points in my life before i found the psychologist who who was able to help me like get over the healing hump um the one who treated the ptsd and he um he was a good fit for my personality because he told me the truth with com- with compassion, which is what I needed. And previous therapists had just been like, oh, you poor little fragile thing. I needed someone to tell me like, you are strong and you can do this and I'm here and I'm going to tell you the truth and I'm going to hold safe space for you. Like he was just the right fit for me. So don't stop. Like I have literally gotten up and walked out of appointments, been like, nope, we're not the right match for each other. Like, We're not the right personality fit. Thanks for your time. Bye. Like you are allowed to do that. You can do that. You do not owe anyone your money or your time if they're not the right person to help you. And I had so many therapists. Oh my gosh. Multiple therapists before him tell me like, well, you know, childhood trauma, sexual assault. Like you're just going to carry this for the rest of your life, but it'll get lighter. That is some bullshit. Do not, like, if if a therapist tells you that they are not the right therapist, they are not, they do not have enough experience or training. Like, you don't have to carry this forever. You don't. Like, did this happen to me? Absolutely yes. Am I carrying it, like, a horrible weight? No. It it lives in a box in my mind that's, like, not behind bars or anything. It's just there. And when I need to access it, I, I take down the box and... I access it and it's not like this massive 25 pound box. It's like a box that has a couple pieces of paper in it. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's possible. That's absolutely a reality that trauma survivors can achieve. Yeah. So
1: I think the interesting thing I've heard you say, and I, I forget the wording and I think it was this psychologist you saw that's Oh, this, the remnants? The remnants.
0: Yeah. Okay. So remnants. Um. That was a really helpful gift he gave me at the very end when he told me like, hey, you no longer meet the criteria for PTSD. You don't have it anymore. He was like, hey, bad feelings might come up now and then. And that doesn't mean you're regressing. Like bad memories, nightmares, flashbacks. Like those are called remnants and you'll get them from time to time. But they'll get fewer and further between with time. And that is so true. Like I used to get them all the time and now I like randomly will get a. And like when I got a remnant back in, in the day when this was when I was new to healing, you know, it it could take a day or two to clear. Now, if I have a remnant remnant, it takes like five seconds to clear. It's like such a little blip, like barely noticeable, doesn't throw my day off. And And I know, like, I can compare it, like, talking about my bio family versus talking about the sexual assault. Like, I can tell I'm not fully healed in there yet with the bio family because I talk about it and and I'll still get emotional and – And I'll still, like, it still hurts and it's still distressing. I can talk about the intricate details of the sexual assault and it doesn't hurt and it isn't distressing. Can I still get emotional about it? If I want to, yes. Like, I'm allowed. Do I usually? No. But if I did, that would also be okay because it's, like, that's an appropriate response to that trauma. But um, it's been very interesting talking through my story and and just the different ways i react to the different portions of my story i can mm-hmm. tell where there's healing work that needs to continue to happen versus portions where i'm like yeah i'm good i'm fine there like
2: mm-hmm.
0: um at least what my brother did to me like i feel like i'm as healed as it is possible to be and that is like that is such a gift and mm-hmm. i know i showed up and i did the work but there were so many people who Supported that journey and and helped guide me to that place and I'm just I'm forever grateful and I I try to name them I try to call them out and um, just honor them in in my work professionally as as often as I can but yeah there that that psychologist was an incredible gift life gave me yeah so that I could I could keep healing so. Um let's just go through a few more points real real quick before before we wrap up this mm-hmm. episode. So <laughs> my ex decided to join the military and I wasn't I I'm supportive I was supportive of it but our relationship was kind of on the rocks and I was like, "Hey, can we just can we put a pin in this?" Like, you want to join the military, I'm not saying no, but can can it wait? And instead he went to a recruiter and signed up and then came home and told me <laughs> afterward. And this is again where like the cult and the good wife and like so instead of being like, no, what did you just do? Like that we you you're moving me and my life and like everything I have mm-hmm. going on. Like I did not agree to this. I, I we did not make this decision together. But because he was my husband, I I had to go along with it, according to the ideology I still had at that time. So I gave up everything and followed him around. Um, While well, he went off to BMT or basic military training in Texas, I went back to Moody and finished out my my last semester on campus. And then I joined him in Texas. And that was the first time that I was um, – I had lived really geographically removed from my biological family mm-hmm. for a significant period of time. We moved from Texas to then um, – Ohio. And, and that's, that's going to be a key factor in the next episode when I talk about reporting my brother, like that geographical distance. So I had like recovered from Mm -hmm. PTSD. I could think straight, the world was in color. Like it was so weird going back to school without PTSD and like, I bet. I was a month ahead in my homework the whole time. Like, my brain was just like, we can think now. We can do life at a very efficient, effective level. This is amazing. and and life was just so much easier in school was so much easier not like trying to think through all the brain fra- brain fog of trauma. So that was very interesting um, as a side note. But so that healing, coupled with moving away and having a long period of geographical distance set up. The events that led to me reporting shortly thereafter
1: it sounds like just in general and i don't know if this is just your case or if this is common with other sexual assault survivors like is is the distance really yes. that impactful yes. like is that like the prime thing if you know somebody that's yes been sexually assaulted Is just like get them away move them to another town like or move with them to another town yes. or something like just That's kind of like a prerequisite to like... Well,
0: that's why I do so much work with universities and the military. Because Mm -hmm. what happened to me is a very common progression of events. Like you get a young person away from their abuser for the first time. For the first year or so, they're going to be like, all the coping mechanisms that used to work for me, like I did my first year away. Mm -hmm. And it's probably not going to surface right then. But in the next year or two after that, so year two or three of being away... That's a very common time when I see survivors like have their, their deep breath where they're like, okay, Mm -hmm. it's time. Like this is, it's forcing its way out of me whether or not I want it to. Does that always happen? No. Is it common? Yes. So if you work with young people between like, I would say the ages of 18 and 24, you need to be extra aware of trauma informed responses. Because that is a very typical progression. That is a very typical age range Mm -hmm. for childhood trauma to like burst its way out. Yeah. And if you see someone who's like suddenly making really reckless choices, like beyond the norm Kyle talked about earlier around like, oh, I'm free. I'm going to break all the rules. Like if you see someone really struggling, that would be a great time to step in and ask them like, hey, can I hold a safe space for you to... Share if there's something bigger going on here, um, and if if someone does disclose a trauma to you, like recognize that that's a significant honor, and like recognize the weight of that and your responsibility to handle it well. Because how we respond to initial disclosures of trauma can really rocket someone forward in their healing or significantly set them back.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know something, just to touch on that a little bit more. Like, my sisters who initially had good responses, when I, you know, became rebellious because I was going and getting therapy, they got really mad at me. And they, like, dropped out of my life just about after telling me, like, oh, Amanda, it wasn't that bad. Like, why are you making such a big deal of this? And, and that really set me back. Like, the way mm-hmm. that people I looked up to, the way that people who were close to me or I respected – Handled me talking about it, like really set me back. Whereas Emily, who was like, I believe you, I care, like I am here, I'm gonna walk with you through this really traumatic time, this really difficult and intense time, she propelled me forward. So, not to like stress people out, but also to reinforce like the weightiness of this situation. If someone discloses a trauma to you, your response really does matter it really does make an impact on that person's healing process. So so recognize the significance of the moment and do your best to have a trauma-informed, healthy, helpful response. And if you fuck it up, you know what? You can always circle back and say, I'm so sorry. I know I messed that up. Can I try again? Mm-hmm. Like, if someone had said that to me, I would have been like, thank God, yes. Like, <laughs> I really would have appreciated that. Yeah. So it's- another educational moment with Amanda. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I think it's, if you are interested in that, like Amanda's book does really good at kind of summarizing it in very short, I think it was only like 100 and something pages, right? It was like,
0: like 80 something pages, okay, actually. Yeah,
1: so it's it's pretty succinct, and it, I mean, I'll, I'll admit, like, there's a ton of stuff in there that I didn't know, and... Or, or had a bad idea of how to respond when someone said something. So um, I definitely think it's worth people picking up and reading. It's It doesn't take very long. Um, this wasn't intended of, to be a plug know, for the book. I but know. Also, but I like, guess
0: like, that's a huge part of this episode. It is. is like disclosures yeah. and people and how they. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point.
1: So I'm just I'm just going to throw that out there. It's it's a good resource. Um,
0: we can yeah. link it maybe. Yeah. We can put it in the,
1: in the description or something. But. Okay it's uh one day we'll get around to recording the <laughs> audiobook version of it and getting the the yeah. hard copy out but yeah um it's- it was
0: a labor of love it actually the book started as a letter to my family like a handwritten letter that i was never going to send and i wrote the whole like the first draft of the whole book in 4 days <laughs> i had a lot to say <laughs> had a lot to say to my biological family about how I wish they had handled it. And the first version was very angsty. And when I sent it out for peer review, they were like, um...
1: (laughs) You're a little pissed off.
0: Maybe not quite so angsty. So it was a labor of love over many years, honing the message and healing so that I could deliver the message well.
1: Mm -hmm. There's at least one particular story in there that was... In the book? Yeah. It really was like... It hit me a little hard because I was like, oh shit, I would have said that. <laughs> so I'll let people listen to it and or read it and, and see if they would have had the same reaction. Well, then. if you
0: do read it, let us know because I'm curious and I'm curious mm-hmm. if it helped you. In the meantime, the podcast is going to keep coming. And next episode, we're going to talk about me reporting my brother. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a fun ride we all get to go on. But it's like a super badass ride. So. <laughs> That like that that should be maybe not quite as heavy.
1: No, it'll be it'll be powerful. I think it's probably the best way of of putting it. In a little infuriating at points. Yeah, but. there is that.
0: Too. <laughs> every so, part of my story is like, well, there's good, but then it's infuriating.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, yep. Check back every Monday for new episodes, and we'll keep them rolling.
0: All right, and give us a like and a review and subscribe and follow and comment and all of this stuff. We want to hear from you. We love yes. hearing from you.
1: And questions. We haven't got any questions. Well,
0: like, maybe by the time this one releases, because we're recording a little early, maybe we'll have questions. But we are planning a Q&A episode. So get your questions in and we'll we'll answer them for you.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of The Cult I Left Behind. Until next time. Don't join a cult. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe, and we will catch you on the next episode.